Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today I'll be covering part two of my series on estrogen. And now for the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition, and it's not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. So in last week's solo episode, I did a broad estrogen overview, but today I wanted to get a little more specific on some particular elements of estrogen that are often overlooked and usually pretty misunderstood. And keep in mind that my goal for these solo episodes is not to solely educate people on the physiology and or the biochemistry of how all these mechanisms work per se, but rather to provide more of a basic foundation to those processes in order to then be able to dig into the more practical and actionable elements behind the complex science, right? This way, things will hopefully make more sense and garner a greater appreciation, especially for those who don't have a necessarily strong background on these particular subjects, despite taking a strong interest in them, right? I mean, the truth is you guys could just as easily take an online physiology and or biochemistry course that may cover every single, you know, esoteric biochemical process imaginable in far more detail than I lay out in these episodes, but that's not really my goal here, right? I'm instead trying to provide practical takeaways and in doing so, hopefully provide the necessary foundation to help support the ability for you guys to understand the why as opposed to just knowing the what. But usually more often than not, most resources out there tend to provide zero tools to apply that knowledge into real world application. And I honestly believe that's why many practitioners out there forget a lot of the basics or sort of dismiss a lot of the basics they once learned, right? They tend not to be taught how to actually apply all of that seemingly useless information they learned in year one, semester one of their formal education. And I just approach things a bit differently, almost the way, say, an engineer would, and I want to pass that knowledge on to you guys. So I just wanted to give that caveat first before jumping right into things. Now, I also want to remind everyone that if you like the content on today's show, please leave a five-star rating and don't forget to follow me on your favorite podcast app. It really helps the show out a lot and is super appreciated. Okay, so in last week's solo episode, I broke down some of the estrogen basics. So I want to now jump into one of the critical factors regarding why estrogen levels may be building up and recirculating in the body. But before doing that, I realized I neglected in my prior estrogen solo episode to discuss the timing of testing, despite going into detail about all of the various testing methods. Okay, so... You'll often hear the best time to test for both estrogen and progesterone is day 21 of the cycle, right? So now to me, that's just silly. Now, I mean, for starters, right, the majority of people on the planet do not have a menstrual cycle, right? That includes children of both sexes, men of all ages, and postmenopausal women. So all of those people can test estrogen and progesterone for that matter on any day of the month they like, right? It doesn't have to be any particular day, specifically, you know, day 21. Okay, so let's now get into why and where this sort of magical, elusive number day 21 of the month came about regarding hormone testing for a cycling female. So yes, right, 
For those that happen to have a 28-day cycle, which is certainly not all cycling women, then yes, for those individuals, day 21 would be the ideal day to test. And the reason is for a 28-day cycle, day 21 lands on what's known as the mid-luteal phase of the cycle, right? This is when progesterone peaks and estrogen, while not at its highest, is still relatively high. And testing for those two markers at that very day of the cycle allows for a more in-depth and methodical analysis to be done regarding the sort of interplay between progesterone and estrogen. Right, and in doing so, you can then observe the ratios and infer things from them that tell a much bigger story than testing just estrogen alone at, say, a random time in the cycle. Now, let's get into what mid-luteal phase actually means, right? So for a 28-day cycle, the luteal phase would start on day 14 and end on day 28, right? And since the midpoint between 14 and 28 is 21, then day 21 becomes the mid-luteal of the cycle, right? So let's say your cycle, right, it isn't 28 days, but instead it's, say, 32 days, right? In that case, the luteal phase would again start at the halfway mark, right? But this time, since it's a 32-day cycle, the luteal phase would begin on day 16, right? Because half of 32 is 16, now, the very day that's halfway between, or you can call it the midpoint between day 16 and day 32 is 24, thus making a 32-day cycle's mid-luteal phase day landing not on day 21, but rather on day 24. And that formula can be applied regardless of how short or long your cycle may be. And just so you guys know, it's typically fine to test two days prior and one day after the mid-luteal phase. All right, it's not going to affect the numbers enough to really cause you to have to wait for the following month to test if for some reason, you know, the exact mid-luteal day didn't work out for, uh, for testing for whatever the reason may be. Okay, so I want to now get into estrogen clearance. Now, remember, it's the liver that metabolizes fat-soluble substances, including hormones, and excretes them into bile in order to be eliminated through the stool. So if bile flow and or production is suboptimal, detoxification becomes impaired, which could lead to the recirculation of estrogen that ideally should have been excreted in the stool. Now, just imagine how many people you know who have issues with their gallbladder, right? It's just overwhelmingly common, right? And if you're experiencing gallbladder issues, there's a fair probability that bile is at the root of that issue, right? Bottom line is if you don't have proper bile flow and production is low, you're missing out on a critical path that the body uses to eliminate not just estrogen, but other sex hormones and various toxins for that matter, right? Now, some people have low production merely as a result of being on a low-fat diet, and since bile is used to break down and emulsify fat in order to turn it into fatty acids, if you're not giving the liver a reason to produce bile and thus not signaling to the gallbladder to release bile, then ultimately there's not going to be much bile flow taking place, right? And since low-fat diets aren't in fashion these days, I would say this is not uh, at the top of the list of the drivers of bile issues today, but it is common enough for me to at least mention it. Okay, so 
Let's now take a step back and consider why else someone may have suboptimal bile production and bile flow. So bile is made in the liver from cholesterol in a pretty complex multi-step process that I'm not going to get into in this episode, but just know once you have that bile acid, you need to conjugate it or simply put to form a complex with either the amino acid glycine or taurine. So without a sufficient amount of those two amino acids on board, you can't properly make bile salts. And while you can make bile acid, assuming you have enough cholesterol on board to do so, without proper bile salts, the bile acids alone have a harder time uh, fulfilling their physiological function of emulsifying fat due to, I suppose you can call it a, a pH incongruency that bile acids have that bile salts do not. So we know glycine and taurine come from animal products, which means vegans are going to stand a much higher chance of being low in these nutrients, right? But also consider those who have malabsorption issues due to say undiagnosed gut infections, right? Many of which are asymptomatic, right? Many of these gut bugs don't even manifest into symptoms at all. Or the symptoms are there, but the person is so used to it, right, having had the discomfort for so long, that oftentimes they don't even recognize the dysfunction, right? They just sort of adapt to it. Hmm. Kind of sounds like a lot of relationships, but I digress. Uh, so the point is, overlooked gut issues are rampant and could be an easy sort of root of the cause solution for some people. Now, there's also phosphatidylcholine to consider, right? This is a key nutrient when it comes to bile. So phosphatidylcholine makes up a portion of bile itself and thus aids in bile production as well as bile flow. And just take a second and think about how common it is for a pregnant woman to have gallbladder issues, right? Ever wonder why? Well, think about it, right? Phosphatidylcholine is appropriately being shuttled to the growing fetus as it's critical for your cell membranes, but it then leaves the mother shortchanged, right? And if you add someone who may have what's called the PMT genetic polymorphism, which, which results in an impaired ability to enzymatically make phosphatidylcholine endogenously, it kind of then becomes the perfect storm, right, for a gallbladder issue. And just to add insult to injury, the food with the highest choline levels are egg yolks. But you need proper bile flow to emulsify the fat from the yolk in order for it to be further broken down, in order for the nutrients to be properly absorbed, namely in this case, the phosphatidylcholine. And so you then have this vicious cycle occurring and it's friggin' madness. All right, I got all emotional there. I'm gonna settle down. Okay, I now want to get into gut dysbiosis and how that plays a role in poor estrogen clearance. All right, let's do this. So there's something called glucuronidation, which is one of the major phase two detox pathways in the liver that helps us eliminate hormones, toxins, as well as some medications from the body. So the body uses glucuronidation to make a large variety of substances more water-soluble, allowing for their subsequent elimination from the body through the urine or the feces uh, via the bile from the liver. So how this works is the liver attaches a substance called glucuronic acid to hormones and excretes them in the bile, 
which we just talked about, into the intestines. Right? The problem is there's this enzyme called beta-glucuronidase that breaks the bond between excreted hormones and glucuronic acid. Right, so think of the glucuronic acid as kind of like the claw in those old machines when you're trying to get that, that stuffed animal. And think of beta-glucuronidase as the enzyme that separates the claw from the stuffed animal you're trying to get, right? So if the stuffed animal, right, in this analogy are hormones that need to be excreted, you could imagine how difficult it would be to successfully make that happen. So beta-glucuronidase is a pretty nasty enzyme that's actually produced internally as a result of an imbalance of intestinal bacteria, right? It literally deconjugates estrogen in the large intestines, allowing for the reabsorption back into circulation, right? And this is a bad thing. So ideally, one should have as low level of beta-glucuronidase as possible. Now, you could test your levels via stool, but knowing if your levels are high doesn't address the root of the cause, right? My favorite phrase as to why the levels are high in the first place, right? You want to take a deeper dive and get a comprehensive stool analysis that looks for things like parasites, pathogenic bacteria, viruses, many of the various strains of bacteria, and how well or unwell they're balanced, right? Just to name a few. So in any event, because this nasty enzyme serves to actually break the bond that this glucuronic acid has on this excreted hormone that's ready and willing to get eliminated, it ends up getting reactivated and reabsorbed back into circulation, now imagine this happening day after day, month after month, and even year after year, right? Just think about the accumulation of circulating hormones as well as toxins that were intended to be excreted, but instead begin to build up over time without most people even realizing it's happening, right? Most people don't have a clue this is occurring. And you can imagine how that could potentially cause issues, both short-term and more importantly, long-term. Now, you could, of course, just simply supplement with glucaric acid in the form of calcium deglucrate, and this would not be a bad short-term strategy, but it really isn't getting to the root of the cause, right? It's just sort of a Band-Aid, and ultimately, Band-Aids are great, right, especially if you're bleeding, but they in no way address why you're bleeding and how to prevent the cause of the bleed to happen again. So just to be clear, right, I am a big proponent of the supplement calcium deglucurate, right? It's super effective at preventing the reabsorption of estrogen. And while I do think it's a phenomenal supplement, I don't think just taking it in the absence of actually testing beta-glucuronidase and testing for why beta-glucuronidase might be high, I just think it's short-sighted. And you'll find yourself just putting this Band-Aid in a supplemental form ongoing, right? And it's costly. And at the end of the day, you're still having this issue that's being perpetuated and you're just kind of neutralizing it on an ongoing basis. And I just don't think that's an effective long-term strategy for long-term health. Okay, so what's another reason for high estrogen, say, in men? So in men, androgens, right, hormones like testosterone and androstenedione, break down into estradiol and estrone via the enzyme aromatase. And you'll see a clear upregulation in aromatase from high insulin levels, also known as hyperinsulinemia, 
as well as from high levels of adipose tissue, also known as fat tissue, right? Another big one is alcohol consumption, right? That'll speed up that enzyme big time. Now, keep in mind, genetics do play a role in all this as well. So the gene CYP19 is the one that actually encodes for aromatase. So really, depending on the genetic variant you have for that enzyme, it could make you someone who needs to be extra mindful of aromatase to, uh, due to a genetic predisposition for an upregulation, or conversely, it could give you a layer of protection whereby you may not have to be as careful as some others may have to be. Okay, well, I hope today's episode provided a good overview on how and why estrogen may build up in the body, right? I hope you guys got a lot out of it and that it really inspires you to be proactive regarding your estrogen health. So my next soul episode on estrogen, I thought I'd dive into what could happen if these estrogen issues are not properly addressed and some of the tools we have to address them if the issues should present itself. Well, that about does it for today's episode. I hope that you guys got a lot to chew on. If you enjoyed today's episode and you like the content, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app. It's the best way to support me in the show and would honestly mean the world to me. Also, I'd love to hear feedback, so leave me a review and a five-star rating as well. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate all the support. All right, well, until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.